You're listening to a message from New Life Foursquare Church in Canby, Oregon. We pray that this message will be an encouragement to you. Visit canbyfoursquare.com to learn more. We need you to help us today, so would you come on up? Would you welcome Kevin Palau? Thanks, Ron. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ron, and uh, it's good to be here. I've never been here for Sunday services, but a couple years ago, uh, I was here for a gathering of the Canby pastors, and I think last year I spoke at the Canby Cares uh, fundraiser. So a couple times, I've lived in Oregon uh, pretty much my whole life. Are there any other kind of born and bred Oregonians here? How many of you were pretty much, wow, that's pretty good. It seemed like about half, half of you, like me, are uh, long-time Oregonians. Uh, my kids are actually fifth-generation Oregonians. Uh, my mom's grandparents were the first uh, uh, to, to kind of come to this beautiful state. Uh, my mom and dad met at Multnomah School of the Bible, as it used to be called, Multnomah University now. Uh, my dad is an Argentine evangelist. Uh, he was born in Buenos Aires, and when he was in his early 20s, a pastor from the San Francisco Bay Area uh, just found there was something kind of about this guy, Luis Palau, and and encouraged Dad to, to go full-time into evangelism and actually paid for him to come up. And this guy happened to be on the board of Multnomah. And so he sent Dad uh, up to this place Dad had never heard of called Portland, Oregon. And there he met uh, Pat Schofield. And they got married. And for eight years when um, my twin brother Keith and I and our two little, uh, younger brothers were little kids, up until Keith and I were eight years old, we lived in Latin America. But since then... Since third grade, uh, the Portland area has been home, and it's a beautiful, beautiful place to live. I hope you agree. I hope that's why you're here. And uh, we're going to be talking, um, uh, the, the title that I gave uh, this sermon, kind of under that broad theme of justice in the heart of God, is living as gospel people in a season of exile. Um, how many of you know that uh, you don't live in the Bible Belt? Have you figured that out? So some of you, I think your laughter is kind of... Uh, indicates you know that we don't live in the same place that maybe our grandparents did. We live in, a, frankly, a totally different culture. Um, so what does it mean when we talk about living in exile? What does that actually mean uh, for us today? Uh, Portland, as I travel around, uh, Portland's been a place, because it's such a quirky, politically progressive place, kind of the anti-Bible belt, it's a place that doesn't value Many of the things that, that uh, presumably you're here as a, as a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, you take God's word seriously. There are parts of the culture uh, that, are, that stand in opposition to what we understand, at least our understanding of what Scripture teaches. So living as people in exile, we're going to take a look at a couple of different examples of what does it mean, what were examples of God's people living in exile. We're going to first look at uh, the people of Israel in the Old Testament, uh, the people of Israel living in the Babylonian exile. And then we're going to, as we kind of probably, what's going to be happening, I'm probably going to squeeze. I took, kind of took uh, inspiration from the, the title, and I'm trying to squeeze two messages into one. So we'll see how we go. The second part of it will probably be, be squeezed into five minutes. But um, the second one will be the, the, the birth of this gospel movement that we're part of. The second chapter of Acts, and what was it like for the early church to live in exile under the Roman Empire? So we've got kind of two evil empires, Babylon and Rome. And what was it like for God's people to faithfully live out their calling as Christ's followers in those, two, uh, in those two things. So as far as living in exile, um, Jeremiah uh, is, is one of the uh, parts of Scripture that talk about 
um, the calling of God's people living in a time of, of tremendous turmoil and change for them. You know, again, we may feel that we're in exile because we're not in the Bible Belt, because we see cultures shifting rapidly. Portland's a quirky place, as I mentioned, and you all know this. Did you know, did you know that we have every year the largest naked bike ride in the world? 15,000 and counting. So, you know, take that every other city in the world, right? That's something Portland's proud of. But again, as an indication of just how quickly things change and how topsy-turvy things can be. So the people of Israel uh, in those days, they had it worse than us, I would argue. Uh, It wasn't that they just were in a cultural shift. Um, The book of Jeremiah describes what it was like for for God's people uh, to live in a time of captivity. Um, You may remember uh, Babylon had come in. It was part of God's judgment, frankly, on the people of Israel for not living the way that that they were called. Uh, But their, their leaders had been taken physically into captivity. The temple had been destroyed so that the physical presence of God, the way that they worshipped, the way that sacrifice were given, all gone, temple destroyed, all the leadership taken in chains to a different land, different language, different culture. So compared to uh, what we face uh, living in Portlandia, or at least in the shadow of Portlandia, they had it worse. So what did God say to these people of, of, of his that were living in this in this vastly different culture. Let's take a look at, uh, uh, well, I'm going to mention four different responses um, as, we, as we read this passage. But I'm going to mention three of them that are kind of not the right response and the, and the response that we often tend to go into uh, before we get to the one that is re- what Scripture puts forward to us. The first response, of course, to uh, living in exile is to assimilate, right? And, of course, we see that happening all the time, even within the body of Christ, where basically there's no difference between a Christ follower and the culture at large. And there's good parts of assimilating in the sense that we're not called to be strange in every single way. There's no reason for us not to dress, generally speaking. We speak the same language. There are parts of culture that are God-breathed and God-inspired that lead us to beauty and to creating beautiful things as much in our present culture in a place like Portland that's to be celebrated. So assimilation but can go too far, though, and assimilating 100% is not the right response. A second response, though, of course, um, is to kind of circle the wagons and, uh, and basically uh, to retreat. And I think a lot of us see that as a response that, uh, uh, that the evangelical community, if we would call ourselves that broadly speaking, it's what we've tended to do. It's to create our own subculture, to say in a, in, as a way to protect ourselves from uh, the culture around us, let's create our own uh, world, our own schools, our own music, our own books, and basically create a, a separate culture where we can be together. And again, there's parts of that that are a biblical response as well. But taken to an extreme, it isolates us entirely and puts us in a position where we cannot fulfill our mission and we have very little influence. So assimilating exclusively is clearly not the way to go. Uh, retreating and basically circle the wagons, let's just wait for rescue, which is certainly what the people in Israel could have done, is saying God has taken us into this foreign land, let's just kind of be together as our own uh, Jewish community and wait for rescue. Um, The other uh, possibility, of course, would and you see it in our culture today, is to kind of fight, not necessarily physically fight, but to basically have an attitude of this is not right, Biblical standards are not being maintained. Let's politically agitate. Let's be known uh, as people that are making clear, clear lines. And let's do everything we can to try to reclaim the culture and fight politically. 
Of course, in a place like Oregon, the reality is we haven't got the numbers to win a fight like that. And the, the reality as well is that, that, that unintentionally, the very people that we're trying to reach can tend to view us not as good news people that have a message of life-giving truth to share, but as people that are basically only known for what we're against. And sadly, I think, as we look at uh, our, our cultural context in Portland, for a lot of the people that we're trying to reach and share the good news uh, with, that's often how they will view us, is the people that I know the couple of things that you're against. I really don't know exactly what you're for. So assimilation, uh, retreating, fighting, parts of it can be biblical, but as a, as a primary response, it's not what God's called us to do. And let's take a look at this simple verse from Jeremiah 29 that, 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 that really provides the heart of what God's message was to his people who had been taken into a place of radical exile. Here's what he says. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for if it prospers, you too will prosper. And I call this uh, response uh, engaging, engaging in love. Not assimilating fully, certainly not retreating and creating a separate subculture, not fighting as the primary expression, but engaging in healthy ways. So uh, that passage, that word uh, that that we put into uh, the phrase peace and prosperity is the Hebrew word shalom. And you may have heard that's a greeting. Uh, If you're in Israel, shalom. It's a very, very rich word, so rich in fact that uh, it needed to be put into a couple of English words, peace and prosperity. One way to describe that would be everything you would wish for your son and daughter on their wedding day, peace and happiness and joy. It was, a, it was a word that meant a lot to the Hebrew people. And so for God to have this kind of a statement to them when they're living in this hated culture, a place that enslaved and killed uh, many of their people, that destroyed the temple, but God's message is not to fight or retreat, but to actively seek the shalom of this place. That, 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 and they also said that God had taken them into exile. So I would argue that this kind of cultural engagement is exactly what God calls us to uh, today. Uh, to be a counterculture for the common good, to steal a Tim Keller phrase. Countercultural in the sense that we're not assimilating, we're not pretending that we're in agreement with the culture on everything. So we're countercultural in that sense but a counterculture that's focusing on the common good, living in a way that even people that are far from Christ would acknowledge that we have a place, we have a vital role, that we're doing something that's making a better Portland, a better Canvey, a better Beaverton where we live for everybody. So what are a couple of examples of what that's looked like uh, for a group of churches, including a church like New Life here in the Portland area? Uh, I I get the chance to travel around. I wrote this, uh, this book, uh, that, that Pastor Ron mentioned uh, with a foreword by an interesting person, Sam Adams. How many of you remember Sam Adams, the former mayor of Portland, Oregon? If you watched the, the uh, uh, IFC hit show Portlandia, he plays the mayor's assistant on Portlandia. A few younger people are smiling. The rest of you are like, I do not know what you're talking about. That's fine. Uh, but Sam was the first openly gay mayor of a top 25 city in the country. Again, a very Portlandia uh, like situation. At the time, about six, seven years ago, actually eight years ago now, we were having a, a, a gathering at our offices in Beaverton of about a hundred pastors. And frankly, we were acknowledging this situation that we were kind of describing uh, in, the, in the book of Jeremiah. The fact is that sadly, we felt like if we were honest, our gospel witness had been hampered by the fact that we were known as a Christian community a little too much or almost exclusively for being against things. 
you know, the memory of some various ballot measures in different, different ways where the primary expression was ballot measures and fighting politically. Again, and I'm not saying that that's not at times part of our calling. I'm not talking about compromising biblical teaching. But if that's the only way we're known, how do we reflect the good news and share the gospel with people that are very different from us? Um, and so out of this group of pastors praying together, a very simple idea emerged. They basically deputized Dad and I and said, go see the mayor. And at the time, actually, Tom Potter, who was the former police chief, was the mayor of Portland. And Sam Adams was one of the city commissioners and was, was running for mayor. So basically, he was mayor-elect. You could kind of tell with the trajectory that Sam Adams was going to be mayor. So we met with Tom Potter, we met with Sam Adams, and asked a very, very simple question, kind of based on that theme verse of seeking the peace and prosperity, the shalom of Portland. We said, you know what, if we're honest, we know that as a community we're known too much for being against things and not enough for being for things. God has called us to seek the peace and prosperity of Portland with you. If we could mobilize thousands of Christ followers from, the, from this group of 100 churches initially, now there's several hundred churches that are part of this, what you might call a gospel movement in Portland, what could we do to serve and make a difference? And, and Mayor Potter and Sam were kind of surprised because, again, they did have certain perceptions about the Christian community at that point. Um, but, but they began to engage, and over a period of time, they came up with just a handful of obvious focus areas, hunger, homelessness, partnering with public schools, uh, putting on some free medical dental clinics, working with kids in foster care. They didn't quite know what to expect, but we launched this first CityServe effort uh, back uh, 2007, and especially in kind of the six-month period, May through October of 2008, because the idea was, as, a, as an organization, we put on these big evangelistic festivals. Uh, that's kind of our history. Dad's an evangelist, so like every evangelist, you want to proclaim the good news to as large a crowd as possible, so we had done a couple of these festivals in Waterfront Park and seen tens of thousands of people come, but this time our thought was, what could we do to break down some of those negative stereotypes that are there because of the cultural wars that, that, the, that we've faced over the years? What can we do to make it easier for people like us to be in relationship with our neighbors, to find common ground with people that may view us a certain way, to get out of this 10-foot hole of misunderstanding that's been dug because of particularly the way the media tends to portray us or you know, a quirky portion of us as kind of reflective of the whole. And so this conversation, you know, Sam's was a little cautious at first, but he began to trust and began to say, what if these people that I kind of viewed as the enemy actually turned out to have something good to give to our city? And so to cut a long story short, it was amazing to see some of the things that began to take place. Sam came in as an education mayor. Uh, at the time, just a little over 50% of the students in Portland Public Schools were graduating on time, if you can believe that, which was really shameful for a city that prides itself on being such an awesome place. And so Sam came in saying, anything you can do for the public schools would be awesome. And in particular, he and Carol Smith, who at the time was Portland Public Schools superintendent, mentioned Roosevelt High School. Carol also happened to be a really prominent member of Portland's LGBTQ community. So she also was starting with a lot of suspicion. How can we unleash these crazy fundamentalists into the schools? But, but you know, they needed enough help, so she said, let's try it. And particularly at Roosevelt, because Roosevelt had been built... Um, in the 1920s for 2,000 students. And by the time this conversation was taking place, there were 400 students left. Uh, the football field, uh, they, they didn't have a football team because the grandstands had been condemned, and there was no community will or support to, to make any kind of a difference. So the, the, the principal, the administration, the teachers, the families that were left 
were the people that basically looked around and said, you know what, we're the people that have no other options. We're here because everyone else has gotten out if they could. We're kind of stuck here. It was on a short list of schools to potentially be closed. And so this was a situation that kind of said, well, let's see if you can do anything for Roosevelt High School. They had, as, as Sam and I became friends later on, and same with Carol, they said, you know, at the time we had zero expectation, but since you weren't asking for any money, we figured, like, what's the harm? Uh, let's give it a whirl. Well, so into this situation um, came a church that some of you may know, a fellow Foursquare church called South Lake. So Kip Jacob, um, pastor of that awesome church in West Lynn, you know, it's not that their neighborhood school, as you may know. They're, they're you know, a suburban uh, church about 22 miles, I think, away from the St. John's neighborhood where Roosevelt is. But despite that, they were kind of looking for a big project. And, and Kip would be the first to say this. It was a little bit of that suburban swagger, you know, like, give us a big project. You just watch what we can do. And sure enough, with about six-month planning, they did an incredible job uh, bringing about 1,000 people, if you can believe it, uh, to do a massive makeover of Roosevelt High School on a Saturday uh, in July of 2008. And if it would have stopped there, it would have been, it was amazing. They, they did about a million dollars worth of impact, uh, these thousand people over the course of that day, joined by community volunteers, Sam Adams, every city commissioner was there, the Oregonian was there. Was there. Steve Dean from the Oregonian began writing, uh, in the end he wrote about a half a dozen cover stories in the Oregonian about the transformation of Roosevelt High School. Because as you may know, it didn't just, end with a service day, a one-day effort, although that was the plan originally. What ended up happening was that the folks from South Lake, I would say led by the Spirit of God within them, just began showing up week after week after week, volunteering in different ways. And Christine Summer, who at the time was the outreach pastor, kind of the joy of uh, South Lake, um, uh, about six months into this, um, Charlene Williams, who at the time was the principal of Roosevelt, said to uh, uh, Christine, you're here every week, basically, with folks from Southlake. Why don't you just office here? So for these last five years or so, Southlake has taken their outreach pastors, various part-time people, and just embedded them at Roosevelt High School, running the new clothing closet and food pantry and the Head Start program. Neil Lomax, some of you remember, great Portland State uh, uh, Viking football player, played in the NFL for years. He was a member at Southlake, as is a guy named Craig Cheek, who's the head of the NFL for Nike. They got together and said, this is crazy that, that you can't play football at Roosevelt. They got Nike involved. They rebuilt the football field, the track, the grandstands. It's the envy of Portland Public Schools. They, meant, they began mentoring every kid in the freshman class. And within five years, the graduation rate at Roosevelt had climbed 15 percentage points, which made it number one in the state of Oregon. And as a result of that, Carol Smith, who I mentioned, again, very prominent LGBTQ community member, concerned about how this is going to work, came to us with a couple school board members and said, please, will you find us a church partner for every school in Portland Public Schools? And we're now about 70% of the way there, 318. Yes, <laughs> praise the Lord. 300 and, uh, 318 and counting public schools in 16 different school districts, Beaverton School District, Tiger, Tualatin, uh, Gresham, Barlow, etc. We've had gatherings where, where the uh, superintendent will bring every single principal in the, di in the district for a mandatory meeting. We'll bring the pastors and we'll just kind of have a get-to-know-you session and just put forward the idea, imagine what it would be like if every single public school had a, at least one church that had raised their hand and said, that's our school. 
That's what we're called to do. We're not embarrassed about our faith. We have a message of good news to share, but we understand that there's times and places, and we're not going to abuse the privilege of serving. We're not going to share the gospel during school hours. But I've always been really clear, by the way, with people like Sam Adams uh, or current uh, uh, mayor, um, not Charlie Hales, Ted Wheeler, um, that's a good friend, and the various school superintendents. As followers of Jesus Christ, we have a message that we are proud of, and we genuinely believe the best way we can serve is to uh, introduce people to Christ. But we also understand the rules that are there for good reason, and you can trust us uh, to serve when we're there to serve, but we absolutely have a message we love to share. We've had no pushback in this whole process. One other quick example of what it's looked like to seek the shalom, to seek the peace and prosperity of the city which God's taken us into is the foster care system. Same kind of process where we went to the nine different DHS offices, Department of Human Services offices that manage the the system, uh, and basically said, we love you, thank you for serving our most vulnerable kids. Is there anything we can do to make your life easier? I'll never forget the first one of those meetings I went to happened to be out in the Rockwood area, East Multnomah County, which is kind of where poverty has migrated in these last years as North Portland has gentrified, which is, which, has, which is good and bad. It's kind of pushed poverty out to East Multnomah County and particularly a, a neighborhood called Rockwood, uh, which is filled with gang violence. It, it, and the, basically at this stage, the systems aren't really in place in East Multnomah County to serve the, the homeless and the, and the addicted and others that are out there. So it's a tough situation. Um, so the, the woman, when we had this conversation and said, we love you, how can we serve you, burst into tears and said, nobody has ever come in asking a question like that. You cannot imagine the pressure of managing the foster care system in a place like East Multnomah County. Everybody that comes in here is angry. They're upset. We're the enemy. We're the people that are keeping them from their kids. If the media come in, it's because no matter how hard we've tried, and maybe we've had five years of everything going well, the minute something goes wrong and a child is, is hurt or worse under our care, all of a sudden we're all over the paper. We're attacked. Just giving her the opportunity to just talk to a group of pastors that were there nearby saying, how can we serve? So every one of those foster care uh, uh, offices have been totally renovated by the churches in that area. Uh, uh, the Portland Timbers have gotten involved. In fact, my twin brother Keith, who's a big Timbers Army supporter, um, is flying out to the uh, MLS World Cup um, this next weekend because he's the Portland Timbers community service person. And if enough people vote for him, then this Embrace Oregon effort, the foster care system, gets $25,000. So if you're a Portland Timber person, go on the uh, MLS, Major League Soccer, website and vote for Keith Palau to get $25,000 toward this. Um, little plug there for what God's doing in the Portland area and my twin brother Keith. But, um, man, the time is slipping away fast. Let's take a quick look at a little video that kind of a five years into this gospel movement of the churches working together to seek the shalom of Portland, what are some of the, of the uh, things it's accomplished and what do some of our city leaders say and pastors? Portland, Oregon is among the least churched parts of the country. It's a very politically progressive place, as our city leaders say. So what does it look like to proclaim the good news, to live out the good news in a holistic way in a place like that? come to appreciate the sincerity and the interest in just being partners on improving people's lives and improving the community on which the churches exist. 
It's really allowing the church to be the church. Um, and we're actually being viewed as a resource, which we know we are and we ought to be. People are receiving love and receiving Jesus. And it was all because we just really wanted to serve. How in the world can we connect all 471 schools in this greater Portland area with at least one church partner that says that's my school? One of the first things I was told about Oregon was it was one of the most unchurched states in the nation. And so, to my surprise, to come and see a church working on a school campus in this community was a bit of a shocker. In these two years, uh, we've been able to identify about 250 of those schools that have a church that's you know, raised their hand and said, that one's mine. It's evolved into years later, from an act of service to an ongoing relationship. It's provided stability in a community that typically, you know, experiences turnover. But to see that this has remained steady is is a gift and a blessing. We want every school to know, hey, I've got this one, two, three, four church partners that I know I can count on. They're, they're part of what we're doing here. They're part of this school community. Embrace Oregon is an idea, it's a movement, and it really started with the idea that the community could come alongside with something tangible for children in this most vulnerable time of waiting. And the response that we got through this Welcome Box initiative was just so completely overwhelming. To see how God has used not only fostering those children and learning just how to love them and, and how special they are, but also doing renovations and remodels and foster parent nights out and all that stuff. And God kind of blew it up into this, this huge thing. It's been incredible that less than a year later, there are 72 churches in the Portland metro area that are saying, we at some capacity are committed to shining a spotlight on the needs of child welfare. Churches are together saying, what does Portland look like in 20 years if we are together for the gospel. It has definitely improved people's lives and it has definitely improved the city of Portland because of those efforts. The greatest way to soften hearts for the gospel is to be in relationship with people. We have to genuinely know them. They need to know us. It takes time. It takes energy. Jesus modeled that for us. All together we are the body, not just my individual local church, but all of us together. We're the body of Jesus in this city. I think we're just scratching the, the surface as far as what we can do in collaboration. The years that it took to, to organize the public school kind of ministries where churches work with, it took several years to really get that running. Where foster care was 18 months from three couples, 72 churches, you know, 18 months. So that's powerful. You realize when the church is mobilized, it really is an unstoppable force. Amen. It's a blessing to see what, as Rick McKinley said so well, when the church of God is mobilized, and we are part of the greatest movement in history. Do you believe that? Again, a place like Portland squeezes us into its mold. It makes us feel, in some cases, ashamed to be followers of Christ. In some cases, there are, there are things that we do that are a little bit quirky and dumb, to, uh, to put it uh, bluntly. Sometimes the way we come across as Christ's followers doesn't help our cause. 
But at the heart of it, and I'm going to try to now take the second part of this. I'm going to do like in five minutes, squeeze the whole thing in. So fasten your seatbelts. Uh, I kind of debated like maybe just to uh, skip it over, but I'm going to just quickly, quickly talk about the, the, the birth of this gospel movement. The second example of living as gospel people in exile, of course, is the early church. The first believers in Jesus Christ who had nothing to speak of, no political power. There were 120 Christ followers left. So Jesus uh, had thousands of followers. At one point it talks about uh, they, were, they were captivated by him, his personality, uh, his teaching. But as you know then, uh, as, as by the time that he's crucified, kind of dashing the hopes of those that thought he was bringing a political kingdom uh, there were 120 people, even after the resurrection, uh, we talk about in the first uh, chapter of Acts, there were 120 people gathered at the beginning of the second chapter of Acts in this room, so fewer people than are here today, was, that, was, was who was there at the birth of this greatest movement in history, which we are now a part of, that, that encompasses billions of people in these last 2,000 years. Um, so what did it look like? Uh, first of all, power to be witnesses. Acts 1.8 you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So we are here because the Spirit of Jesus Christ was promised, and that early church received the Holy Spirit. So uh, Acts chapter 2, to just to, to move on there really, really quickly. One interesting thing to note at the very beginning, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. So they were all together in one place. There's a power in unity. This is a small band of people, 120, but look at what God has done through 120 people that were actually faithful uh, in fulfilling their mission. Look at in Portland, the power of unity. Uh, the power of unity is, ex- is expressed in a local congregation like, like, like uh, New Life. Uh, when you're given opportunities to be part of things like uh, Can Be Cares, or I'd, I'd heard already talking about school partnerships um, that... Uh, Karis, I think, is the name of a, of a school. You may have gotten just a little preview to that. You're going to have an opportunity uh, to engage in healthy ways into the life of one particular school. Um, so there's a tremendous power that comes when we're together as a congregation around a goal like serving a school. Or I would say even more when you have a feeling of unity in churches all of different denominations across a metro area. And we've seen some examples in the school system and foster care. Um, a quick story about Sam Adams, because some of the people are wondering, like, what is, whatever happened to him? Um, he now lives in Washington, D.C. He runs the largest global climate change kind of environmental action group, hundreds of employees in Washington, D.C. Uh, but the change in his own life, some of you might remember when he was first elected mayor, there was a big scandal that erupted. You may remember bits of that. Uh, he had been found to be lying about an affair. It was a bad situation in every way. And we were just going to launch this second city serve effort. We were going to give a check for $100,000 toward an effort that the city had put forward. We had 500 pastors coming um, to Hinson Bible Church. And a week before this all happens, this big event, scandal erupts. We were kind of thinking, like, what do we do? I called up Frank DiMaggio at City Bible, who was a pastor there at the time, and Rick McKinley and others, and said, what should we do? And I was kind of 50-50. Maybe we should just kind of pull back and let Sam send somebody else and not be kind of associated with it, but the pastors uh, were really, really clear in saying, "Look, this is a tremendous opportunity uh, to express the love and grace of Christ to him, and just see what God will do." At the same time, um, I had Sam's cell phone, so I texted him, Dad and I, just saying, "I can't imagine 
the, just what you're going through. I mean, imagine if the worst thing you'd ever done that you thought was hidden and you knew it was wrong, but it was all of a sudden it's on the front page of the paper. Imagine the, the shame and humiliation. So we reached out and said, anything we can do for you? Dad would love to come and pray to, with you. And my, to my surprise, Sam immediately said, please, would your dad come and meet with me and pray with me? So the day after the press conference, before this gathering of 500 pastors, Dad spends two hours with Sam, one-on-one. I wasn't there, but both Sam and Dad have described it. And Sam started off saying, Luis, I don't get it. I'm a smart guy. I knew this was wrong. How could I have let myself do this? And Dad just opened up God's word and said, well, Sam, you grew up Episcopalian, so let's just, doesn't matter what I think, let's look at what God's word says. And did the same thing any of us would do, kind of looking first at the, in a sense, like the bad news, the reality of our, of our sin nature and the fact that even when we try our best, uh, we fall short. Uh, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? So as Dad's going through this part of it, uh, the way he described it is Sam's physically going like this. That's me, that's me, that's me. And two hours of dad just basically sharing the good news, praying with Sam at the end. I'm certainly not here saying that Sam's life totally turned around, he received Christ, but that gospel opportunity, dad came out of that meeting in tears saying, I've seldom had an opportunity like that in my 50 years of evangelism to share the gospel with someone so antagonistic at the beginning, meaning at the beginning of his relationship, basically saying, these people are the enemy, they've got nothing good to offer, they stand against my community. Um, From that time forward, Sam has been on Focus in the Family radio, if you can believe that, with me. He took three trips to New York City with me to help convince the mayor of New York City, Bill de Blasio, who's an atheist, that these evangelicals aren't so bad, trust me. We stood together at uh, Tim Keller's Redeemer Presbyterian Church in, f- in front of hundreds of evangelical pastors, and there's Sam Adams saying, look, I thought these people were the worst people in town. It turned out that nobody encouraged me and prayed for me and stood with me and made Portland a better place in my four years as mayor than this part of the community. And so the opportunity to demonstrate the good news uh, is amazing, and, and unity is a, is a key part of it. Um, And of course, in in, in the the next few verses, describe what actually happened when they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, They were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues or other languages. And the key, uh, the point of that is fire, of course, in the Old Testament to the people of God, fire represented the very presence of God. Uh, pillar of fire at night as, the, as, they, as the, uh, the people of Israel were walking through uh, the desert. Fire up on the mountain as Moses is receiving the Ten Commandments. And of course, the burning bush itself, fire symbolizing the presence of God. So in a sense, by this symbol of these tongues of fire that came to rest in every believer, in a sense, it's basically every believer now a burning bush. Every single believer, every Christ follower, educated, uneducated, rich, poor, every believer filled with the very presence of Jesus Christ himself, which is the only thing that gives us the power to be bold in our proclamation. And I would argue, you know, we've done these tremendous things to love and serve the community. We've built trust now with four mayors in a row. But it's interesting. We had a retreat with some of the key pastors that have been part of this movement, and some of the marketplace leaders, head of Wells Fargo and Pacific Power, etc., some of the key nonprofits and the Murdoch Trust. We went on a retreat. And one of the things we realized is that we've done a great job on the serving, demonstrating the good news, and we've kind of drifted a bit in our clear proclamation of the good news, a clear evangelism. We started off uh, very clearly 
serving the community, and then the big evangelistic festival at Waterfront Park and Luis Palau proclaiming the good news to 50,000 people. But in the years since, it's kind of, and I don't say drifted as though it's a bad thing. We absolutely want to keep the pedal to the metal, serving on all these fronts, absolutely. There's, there's so much biblical justification for that. But we recognize that we'd kind of drifted a bit in terms of our bold proclamation. And I would, I would argue that today, the real countercultural role for us as Christ followers is to be bold in sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the very thing that the culture would say, do anything you want, but don't do that. And I think for us to be faithful followers of Jesus, we've got to mirror this second chapter of Acts. These first believers that had, again, nothing but the presence of Jesus Christ. No money, no political power, uh, they all spoke one language. I mean, they had this supernatural gift. We're not sure if it was temporary or longer term. But you had this day of Pentecost where the gospel began to spread because people were there from all these different countries. I wish the time allowed. We've got to move on. But boldness and proclamation is such a key thing. And what was the result of that? Peter preaches the first evangelistic message. 3,000 people come to Christ. So my dad loves that passage. My brother Andrew, they're evangelists. Man, you preach the good news and thousands of people come to Christ. And then let's look at, at, at what this changed community looks like at the very end of chapter 2. And, uh, and then I'll give you a chance to, uh, to just spend a few minutes uh, looking at some questions and breaking up into groups of 2, 3, 4, whatever makes sense, and thinking about uh, what you've heard. So here is the result. As these 3,000 people were added to the 120 Christ followers, uh, they were a changed community. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Radical generosity. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So I would, I would argue that the best witness that we can possibly have is to be these kind of people so changed, so engaged with the community, so unafraid to be bold Christ followers, so filled with the Holy Spirit of Jesus himself that we are an attractive community. It, talk, it talks about the people that lived this way, this early church. They were fellowshipping. They were devoting themselves to the apostolic teaching. We have that now in the New Testament. Uh, they were in fellowship with each other. They were a radically generous community to the point of selling possessions and making sure that they were a community where nobody had need. Um, and it talks about the favor that they had. And I would argue that here in a place like Portland, the community, we've gone from being kind of viewed as this negative force, anti-everything, to genuinely being in relationship with our school districts, our mayor, our media. It's been the beginnings of a, of a real turnaround. And every single one of us that love Jesus in this Portland metro area, including this Canby area, can continue the amazing work of this gospel movement. So sorry to have kind of tried to squeeze probably too much uh, in, but we've got these discuss, this discussion questions, and I think we can just take just a few minutes um, we'll put those questions up. So go ahead and break up into little groups for just a few minutes, discuss these questions, and then I think Ron's going to come and close off in just a few minutes. So go ahead and find a few people and, uh, and uh, just take a few minutes to discuss these things.
thank you for listening. Please let us know if you have questions or would like us to pray with you. You can contact the church office most weekdays at 503-266-4444 and anytime through canbyfoursquare.com.